So like uh, Rick mentioned, Pastor Larry and Hope are traveling. And so as you pray for them, you know, pray for Larry especially as he celebrates 52 years of being married. And so good for him for making it through the gauntlet for as long as he has, right? I'm just kidding. He, he really is a good example for all of us. I mean, he's a, he's a good, good husband. And he's uh, showing me as a young man what it means to be a good, faithful married man. And so I'm grateful to have him in my life. And I hope you guys are too. Uh, today, I want to share a little bit with you from an article I read called Surprising Peace in Times of Crisis. It reads in part that there's a book called Running Scared by psychologist Edward Welch, which illustrates how the fear of an event is often worse than the event itself. And to demonstrate this, he provides two examples of people whose lives are seemingly about to end in the peace that they experience at that moment enables them to survive. A skier in search of a thrill pushes off and drops 40 feet to a steep powdered slope below. He loses his balance on impact and begins careening out of control into either a stand of trees or a field of boulders. Whichever he hits, he knows the impact will kill him. But he is surprisingly objective about it. He wonders if the impeding crash will hurt. He wonders about life after death. He wonders about the bill on his desk that remains unpaid. And he muses about, the, about all of this without any alarm. Somehow, though, he avoids both trees and rocks, and he walks away unscathed. A 12-year-old girl who was always scared of the water and never learned to swim is beckoned by friends to cool off in a relatively shallow area of a bay. Reluctantly clutching a boogie board, she ventures out. All is well until she loses her grip on the board and slips into a small hollow on the water's bottom. As she sinks beneath the surface, she experiences this surprising calm. Here she's faced with her worst fear and it seems peaceful. When she looks up, she notices two white pillars above her. They are the legs of a friend who doesn't even know she's drowning. The drowning girl gets her hands on one of the legs and pulls herself up to the surface. Circumstances or the condition connected with an event can be interesting things because we often don't have control over them. Sometimes things happen that are out of control, but how we handle those situations or the attitude that we have in a particular situation can be the difference between life and death, as was the case with the skier and the swimmer. And as Christians, it can be the difference between showing non-believers what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like, a true Christian, or what a religious person looks like, or somebody who thinks they're better than other people because maybe they go to church. God allows people to go and to be into all kinds of situations. Some of the situations are good and some are not so good. One of the first things people tend to do when faced with the not so good is to ask God why. Why do I have to suffer like this? Why is this happening to me? I've been a good Christian. I've given money to the church. I've been loving and kind to my neighbors. I've been reading my Bible every day. 
Why have you allowed me to suffer like this? What are we supposed to do as Christians in these not so good times? What are we supposed to do when the situation we are in is not ideal according to the way we think things should be or what we want in our lives? For example, what do we do if we're out in a broken world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with non-believers and we find ourselves being persecuted? Can you imagine being persecuted in the United States? The freest nation on the planet? If you don't think things like that are coming, you're probably not paying attention. But let's assume for a moment that this happens to us. That we're being ridiculed for believing in God or for sharing that belief with others. Something simple like pleading with the population, for example, that killing unborn babies is wrong. And let's pretend that these people in this country that disagree and think that it's okay to kill babies and that they start to ridicule you and your beliefs. What kind of attitude should we have as faithful followers of Jesus? Should we prepare ourselves to repay evil for evil? Should we ridicule them back? What does the Bible even say about something like this? How should I respond as someone who loves Jesus Christ to someone that doesn't know anything about God or his love? Here's something to think about. In Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says this, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I mean, what? What's the point in that? What's the point in treating people who hate me with any kind of respect or decency if they're not going to do that for me? One of the most amazing aspects of the Bible in my opinion, is that it gives us all the answers we need to some of these very difficult questions. Today we're going to explore a situation in the Bible that should help us to see what it looks like when faithful followers of Jesus Christ have an attitude of hope. Even when faced with some pretty difficult situations. And we're going to see how things turn out when they choose to do things God's way. Back in the first century... After Jesus was crucified on the cross and after he was resurrected, the church began to grow rapidly throughout the Roman Empire. And this took place by Christians preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ and him crucified on the cross, or what we would call evangelism. And the book of Acts, which was written by Luke around AD 63 or later, was a historical account of how some of that growth happened. And some of the ups and downs that were associated with that process. The book of Acts provides us with so much encouragement today because we get to see just how God uses things like Christian persecution to bring about some incredible outcomes that ultimately transform lives and add believers to the Christian church. And we can strengthen our faith by learning from and emulating those who have been there and done that. People like the Apostle Paul and Silas, who, for example, had some easy times and some hard times. They had some times that they had to suffer for Christ. And while they did, they seemed to maintain a holy attitude while serving God. One such situation is found in Acts chapter 16, where 
Paul and Silas get imprisoned while traveling through various parts of Rome and evangelizing. They meet a woman named Lydia, and the Bible says the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. She was extremely happy to have heard the gospel message. And she was so grateful that she actually begged Paul and his companions to go to her house and stay. Now, I can say as a newer evangelist, nobody's ever begged me to come and stay at their house. Uh, that's not normal. Um, although, if I was invited to barbecues and things like that, you probably don't have to beg. It's like a one-time <laughs> invite. Um, just tell me when and where. But. but her gratitude to these men was so awesome that she wanted to do something for them. Something to show them that what they were doing had made an impact. And so she was able to persuade them to stay with her. Now, I'm sure this would have been super encouraging to the Apostle Paul and his companions. Probably felt super supported. Probably felt very confident. Probably one of those things are going really good moments. Things are moving in the right direction. This is easy peasy. However... Not everyone that hears these men preaching and teaching had that same attitude of gratitude. In fact, as we're going to see, they're about to encounter some opposition to sharing the gospel. And this is one of those situations that we get to learn something about how God can take something that was meant for harm and turn it into something truly amazing. You can open your Bibles up if you want to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 and verse 16 through 18. Paul and his group, Silas, Timothy, and, and Luke, have just left Lydia's house. They've just had this wonderful experience. They're all rested up. Their bellies are full. And then the Bible says this, verse 16. Now it happened as Paul and the group went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. The girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So Paul and the others are walking together on their way to go pray. And this demon-possessed woman is following behind them, and crying out or yelling and mocking them, essentially warning the locals that these men were attempting to tell them what they needed in their life, what they needed for salvation and how to get it. You can imagine the sort of condescending tone when you visualize this happening. This sort of whiny, these men are the servants of the Most High God, that's kind of how I hear it, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. It sounds kind of snooty and gross. And I don't know if that was, but... And according to the text, and according to the text, this demon-possessed girl followed them and mocked them for many days as she attempts to distract them from their service to God. But Paul starts to get annoyed, the Bible says, and he cast the demon out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, personally, I would have gotten annoyed much faster than several days later. But that's one of the things, one of the first takeaways here is that Paul was actually slow to anger. Even when being taunted by a demon, he showed an incredible amount of tolerance for somebody who was not nice to him. Something we should all work on as Christians. 
Proverbs 14, 29 says, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. There's a couple of other important things to note here before we move on. First, starting with the spirit of Python or the spirit of divination. This is that demon-possessed woman. There are some who teach that this is a specific entity or specific demon whose job it is to make Christians unhappy or depressed and to interfere with their spiritual health. And there are some charismatic groups that take this sort of belief and associate everyday problems with the interference of these demons. Kind of like when a, when a man cheats on his wife, they might say something like, he's been influenced by the spirit of Jezebel. Or something like that. And, and they'll sometimes take that understanding and use the demon's name to cast him out or to exercise the demon, such as Paul did to the spirit of divination. However, as one source puts it, Scripture gives us no reason to believe there is any particular spirit named Python. It's unwise to assume the existence of a particular type of demon based on the pagan name for a mythological monster. Further, the Bible gives no reason to believe we have a specific ability to rebuke or exercise any demon. And there's no instructions on exorcism in the Bible. Evangelism and discipleship essentially have replaced casting out demons, particularly because the word of God has been completed and therefore provides a more powerful weapon with which to battle evil. This was not available to the early Christians like Paul and others. So in general, casting out demons is not something done today, at least according to my understanding and that of a lot of scholars and a lot of Christians. Um, I know some of our neighbors, they do a lot of work with that kind of thing, but I was unable to find anything in Scripture that promotes how to do it. So um, that's kind of the stand on it. So anyways, to get back on track, Paul and the others were being yelled at and mocked by this fortune-telling demon-possessed woman while on their way to pray. And after many days of this, Paul exercised or cast the demon out of this woman. And finally, after finally becoming annoyed with her, taunting. And there are two things that happened simultaneously once this woman was released from her bondage. First, she would have been free to receive forgiveness from Jesus through the message being proclaimed by Paul. Essentially, she could have accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior and been saved just like Lydia. I mean, I'm not really sure if that happened, but it's likely because the second thing that happened after being freed is that her master could no longer use her to make money. Remember verse 16, the text said she brought her master's much profit by her possessed fortune telling. And now she could not do that. As you can imagine, those masters were not happy. Verse 19 through 24 Say this, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
So just as expected, the masters viewed this woman as a moneymaker. Property that belonged to them. And when Paul exercised that demon out in their minds, he had damaged their property or broken off their source of income. And that was unacceptable to them. These men did not rejoice that this woman was freed from torment, but was instead enraged by their loss of profit. And so Paul and the others were brought before the local authorities. And remember that they were first presented as Jews and then blamed for troubling the city by teaching customs that were not lawful. These men being Jews, the slave owner said, there was no discussion about what they had done, and there was no form of justice used because they were first labeled as Jews, which prompted some racial hatred, thereby forfeiting a fair trial and leading to the local crowds revolting against Paul and Silas and the authorities convicting them and sentencing them to a beating and to prison. It's not clear exactly why Luke and Paul, or excuse me, Luke and Timothy didn't go to jail with them. Um, some suggest it could have been because they looked... Uh, more like Gentiles, um, more like Greeks. Um, and so maybe they blended in with the locals more. I'm not really sure. Uh, but so they had many stripes laid on them. They were whipped and thrown into prison. And their feet were in the stocks. One commentator said this. Those who have seen anything of the prisons of the Roman Empire as the maritime dungeon at Rome itself can picture to themselves the darkest and foulest of the den into which Paul and his friends were now thrust. The dark cavern-like cell below the ground, the damp and reeking wall, the companionship of the vilest outcasts. And as if it were not enough, they were fastened into the stocks. Stocks would have been some type of wooden device that kept the feet separated and in a very, very uncomfortable position. So let's see. Things have gone <clears throat> from good to not so good in a hurry. These men went from experiencing a person's gratitude for their commitment and hard work to being followed, yelled at, taunted, annoyed, accused of breaking the law, denied a fair trial because of their race, convicted, whipped, bound, and imprisoned for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and liberating a woman from demon possession. And to top it all off, Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And this type of treatment was not permitted to Roman citizens. This was the illegal mistreatment of people because of race and religion, religious belief. In other words, this was persecution. It's really hard for me not to make some connections between what we've read so far and what we're seeing in our society today. Think about the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade and the reactions we have seen. You have this demonic industry, these abortion clinics that use women who are scared and confused about their situations to make money by convincing them to kill their babies. You have Christians fighting against it. And when they finally succeed in removing the, the profit from these abortion clinics, they say Christians hate women. They say Christians are racist. They say Christians are bad. And they tried to burn down pregnancy centers. And they burned down Christian counseling centers. They are enraged 
just as the masters were with the loss of their money-making, fortune-telling demon. It's brutally similar and scary. However, there's still much to learn because despite the situation Paul and Silas are in, their response to persecution, persecution is impressive and very valuable for us to learn. Remember, they're in a deep, dark dungeon cell. They've been beaten. They're likely laying in the dirt with their feet bound. And notice verses 25 through 28. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul, but Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are here. Why would these men be singing hymns to God during a time that was so clearly not a good time? It was a time of pain. It was a time of imprisonment. It was a time of suffering. Were they in shock? Was it mental health problems? Why were they praying and singing to God during this time of difficulty? The answer is found in Psalm 23.4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. It's important to understand that these were men who understood the completed work of Christ. These were men who understood that Jesus died on the cross. And when he did, he cried out from the cross, it is finished. He was providing an eternal path forward, a path that leads away from the broken and destructive world to heaven. And that there is no power on earth that can separate a Christian from God's love. And so... As they lay in the dirt, beaten and battered, they know that God is with them. And as the psalm said, they know that their suffering is for righteousness' sake. This is another very important thing we need to learn from them. And that is that regardless of our suffering, we need to recognize that as Christians, God loves us. And we need to hurl our anxieties at Him. Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Casting means to throw something onto something. That's why I say hurl those fears. Toss them over. John MacArthur said, Christians are to cast all of their discontent, discouragement, despair, and suffering on the Lord. And trust him for knowing what he's doing with their lives. But notice that while they were praying and singing, singing, while they were hurling their cares, the Bible says that the other prisoners were listening. And this is another important aspect of this passage because the attitude these men had was a direct testimony to their love of God and his love for them. And they were sharing their testimonies with others. They were acknowledging Jesus Christ as their Savior in the form of prayer and praise. And that was being shared with the other prisoners. 2 Timothy 1.8, 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. As Christians, we need to share our testimonies. We need to pray and to praise God as often as possible because the effect is other people will be listening. Then the situation changes. This miraculous event in the form of an earthquake takes place and all the prison doors are open and all the prisoners' chains are broken and they're all free. I can't even imagine what this would have looked like. I mean, the Bible doesn't say how many people were in the prison, but notice that none of them left the prison. I mean, let's be real for just a second. I would have been right out the door. <laughs> right out the door. Especially after being imprisoned unjustly. But they didn't do that. And the prison guard was actually about to kill himself in anticipation of the consequences associated with being on duty during a prison break. His first thought was, they're gone, I'm dead. But Paul stops him by shouting out in the darkness, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Paul wasn't interested in an easy way out. He wasn't thinking about himself in this situation. It was never about him. It was always about the gospel, which is why they did not flee. What good is saving yourself from a moment of pain and not helping others from an eternity of torment? Romans 15.1 says, When they who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. As Christians, we have been reconciled to God. We have received His grace and His mercy, and we have an obligation to share that, inf that information with those who are still in the darkness. Just like Paul did, as he faithfully complied with the Great Commission, where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28. You see, if they would have left prematurely, they would have missed an incredible moment, an incredible opportunity to share the gospel. Notice in verse 29 through 32. Verse 29 through 32. Then he, the prison guard, called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. This is an incredible situation. Remember, they're in the inner prison. It's completely dark. So the guard, he grabs a light. He runs in to see if, in fact, the men are still there. Surely, thinking to himself, please be there, please be there. And sure enough, when he enters the inner prison, they are. All the prisoners, unshackled, free from their cells, but all accounted for. When he approaches Paul and Silas, he falls down trembling or shaking from either the anxiety or the excitement of this situation. And he realizes these are not ordinary men. 
These are men who know God. These are Christians. So he escorts the men out of the prison, takes them to his own house, where he asks them the most important question of his life. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they responded, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with this guard and all those who were in his house, probably family members, servants, etc. The Bible says the men's wounds were cleaned, and then the guards and his household were all baptized, professing their faith in Jesus Christ. And they celebrated their salvation together, the Bible says, with food and rejoicing. Notice the two most important aspects of this situation are, first, that Paul and Silas never meant anything bad to happen to the guard, regardless of their own treatment. They kept their eye on the ball, as it were. And when this man was exposed to their godly attitudes, he was convicted. And God sparked in him the desire to be saved and a desire to have what Paul and all Christians have, a desire to know God. And of course, Paul, being an evangelist, jumped on it and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with this man and his household. And they were all saved. They all professed their faith and were baptized. The second important aspect of the situation was their rejoicing in their faith. The Bible says in Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has cornered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. As Christians, we have been gifted salvation. We have been reconciled to God. And he views us as righteous. Do you know what that means in the eyes of God? He sees the perfection of Jesus Christ when he looks upon us. And if that doesn't provoke in you the desire to rejoice, then what does? If that doesn't provoke in you the desire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, then what would? If that doesn't provoke you with the desire to have a godly attitude, then what will? These are questions that we have to ask ourselves, especially in the face of hardship and persecution. We should greatly rejoice in the Lord. We should be joyful that our God has saved us. And we should pray to Him and praise Him, regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. Because our suffering may not even be about us. It might be that we are there for someone else or their entire household. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, as Christians... We should never feel sorry for ourselves. The moment we do so, we lose our energy. We lose our will to fight and the will to live and are paralyzed. Regardless of what we're going through in this life, we should not allow ourselves to become spiritually paralyzed. And now that we have this biblical example, we can think about these things in a practical sense. First, Paul and Silas were persecuted for their faith and commitment to God while preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ and the salvation that only he can provide. And they were unmoved. As Romans 8, 35 and 37 say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Second, Paul and Silas maintained a godly attitude during their time of tribulation by praying and praising God. They have demonstrated to us and to all Christians what it looks like when a person puts God above themselves. They have demonstrated to us and to all Christians that when times are hard, a spiritual song can go a long way. Even beyond ourselves and into the hearts of others. As was the case with the other prisoners who were listening to Paul and Silas. Show their love for God through prayer and praise. Luke 10, 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbors as yourself. And third, Paul seized the opportunity to preach. When the jailer asked him what must be done to be saved, Paul wasted no time. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. There is literally nothing more important in the world that a person needs to hear than that statement right there. There is no feeling in the world that can give you eternal life. There is no amount of good works that can give you eternal life. You can't memorize enough Bible verses. You cannot give enough money to the poor. You have to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have to. John 6, 47, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And fourth, remember, Paul and Silas were in prison, beaten, battered, and bruised. But through their commitment to God, he, meaning God, provided for them. He released them from the shackles. He opened the prison doors. And when they did not flee, when they did not serve themselves, the Bible says the guard took them to his own house out of gratitude, dressed their wounds. And after being baptized, they celebrated with food. God, in his infinite wisdom, provided everything they needed, which is consistent with who God is. Philippians 4.19. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God is good even when we're having a tough time. God is good even when things are not going the way we think that they should go. God is good even when it costs us everything up to and including our own lives because of what he has promised us far outweighs anything we could achieve here in this broken world. God has promised those who believe eternal life. And we as Christians should not take that promise lightly. We should not freak out when things are tough. But instead we should just breathe. Just pray, just praise, and just preach. Pray, praise, and preach. And let God provide and protect. Speaking of protection, notice verses 35 through 40. After their night out with the prison guard and his household, they were back in the prison. And notice verses 35 through 40. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrate have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. 
And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. It would seem that the overall goal of these magistrates was to teach Paul and Silas a lesson about disturbing the status quo. It would seem they envisioned these men were taught a lesson and would now just move on. However, notice Paul refuses to go quietly. Paul insists that the magistrate come down and release them publicly after announcing they are Roman citizens who essentially have been convicted and punished without a proper trial, which would have very serious consequences to these magistrates. And so the Bible says they were afraid and pleaded with Paul and Silas to leave, essentially begging them, knowing that their actions were illegal. While Paul and Silas did leave, they did so on their own accord, first stopping by Lydia's house and encouraging the Christian brothers and sisters. One commentator stated that, according to Roman law, a Roman citizen could travel anywhere within the Roman territory under the protection of Rome. He was not subject to local legislation unless he consented, and he could appeal and be tried by Rome and by the local authorities when in difficulty. So why did they not invoke their Roman rights from the beginning? Who knows? But it's clear that by not doing so, by not putting themselves first, God used them in mighty ways, as we saw. And they, in the end, provided them with the necessary protection to advance the kingdom through their commitment to Jesus and his gospel. Isaiah 46, 4 says, Even to your old age, I am he. And even to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. Through the ups and downs of Paul and Silas's imprisonment, and through the ups and downs of our own lives and situations, it is not us that carries God, but rather God that carries us. This has always been the case with God. No matter what situation we might face in life, as Christians, we can face it boldly. We can pray, praise, and preach in the toughest of times because our God will provide and protect according to his goodwill. And as we conclude, let me leave you with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, which says this, Yet surely there must be some who will fling aside the cowardly love of peace and speak out for the Lord and for his truth. A craven spirit is upon man and their tongues are paralyzed. Oh, for the outburst of true faith and holy zeal. It's my hope that we here at Shadow Mountain will be bold in our faith, as Paul and Silas were. And it, instead of having surprising peace in times of crisis, we would have godly peace in times of trouble. Let's pray. Holy Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you so much for always being there for us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as we encounter trouble in this world, that we would pray and praise you. That no matter what we're faced with, that we would look upon the promises that you have given us, the promise of eternal life, Lord. And I pray that you would inspire in us the desire to share that with everybody we know, 
especially those that don't know you, Lord. And I pray that as we sing out praise to you, that somebody will hear it who needs to hear it. Thank you, Lord, for this message. Thank you, Lord, for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.